Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors, and you, our listeners, get to ask the questions. I'm Tavi Kowalchuk, and this is a special episode of the show. We are dropping it in the middle of our normal schedule as a surprise treat. Today, we're talking about audiobooks. I normally read printed books, but two audios I'll never forget listening to are Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, narrated by Jim Dale, and Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, narrated by Ethan Hawke. Wow, that sounds really good. I'm Eliza Rosenberry, and I'm the same as you. I usually read print books, but whenever I'm on a road trip, I always try to download at least one audiobook to my phone in advance in case, you know, there's no good radio stations or whatever. And thrillers and mysteries always seem to work really well for me in that sort of environment. So on vacation a couple years ago, my husband and I drove to Nova Scotia and we listened to one of the Harry Hole uh, detective books by Joe Nesbo. I can't even remember which one. I think maybe it was called Phantom. Um, And last summer I listened to Bluebird, Bluebird by Attica Locke, which was also very good. Mm. Um, But I also love listening to comedians read their own books. Like David Sedaris does an amazing job. Oh my gosh. I know. I heard that the Amy Poehler audiobook is so good. Also really good on on audio is poetry. Nikki Giovanni, who we had on the show, her, her audiobooks are amazing. On today's show... A mother's world is turned inside out, and she's driven to extreme measures when her baby son is kidnapped. We'll be listening to the domestic suspense novel Mother May I on this special episode of the Book Club Girl podcast. And in just a moment, we'll be joined by the author and the audiobook narrator, Jocelyn Jackson. Many of you may remember that Jocelyn Jackson was our first ever guest on the podcast. We discussed her. Her, I know, so long ago. (laughs) We discussed her first thriller, which was called Never Have I Ever. And because of this, she holds such a special place in our hearts. And so when we heard that her new novel, Mother May I, was coming out, we knew we had to do something special. So instead of our usual book discussion and author conversation, we are giving you nearly a whole half hour of the Mother May I audiobook to dive into before the book even goes on sale. Nice. And now we present to you Mother May I Abridge. Brie Cabot loves her life. She has a great husband, a smart and kind daughter, and a sweet baby boy. This perfect life is shattered when one evening, while watching her daughter's theater rehearsal, her baby is kidnapped. Instead of her son, what Brie finds in his carrier is a threatening note. Bree must do everything her kidnapper says if she wants to get her child back. Out of her mind, with terror and stress, Bree starts a conversation with the kidnapper, who is a mother herself. The kidnapper wants Bree to roofie her husband's boss at the company's annual cocktail party. When Bree complies and things go seriously awry, she secretly enlists two friends, a lawyer and an ex-cop to help her track the kidnapper and rescue her son. To keep the kidnapper distracted, Brie maintains her phone conversations, gleaning enough details to piece together the kidnapper's motives and some seriously disturbing secrets about the life that Brie once thought was lovely and uncomplicated. Today, we're joined by Jocelyn Jackson, whose book, Mother May I, goes on sale April 6th. 
Jocelyn, welcome back to the Book Club Girl podcast. We are so excited to hear that you've written another domestic suspense novel. We loved, as you know, Never Have I Ever. Oh, thank you, Tavia and Eliza. I'm so excited about Mother May I. So, Jocelyn, we wanted to have you on to talk about the audiobook because you perform your own audiobooks. Can you tell us, is that the norm for authors to read their own books? No, and this is very mean to say, but I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad it's not the norm. Um, unless, you know, you're Neil Gaiman or somebody who has the skill set and is, is good at it, then it's wonderful. But I actually started as an actor, as a voice actor. So I went to school. My first degree is in theater. I've done, like, voiceover work for PBS and places like that. So I, I came in with that skill set before I knew how to write a novel, honestly. So have you been always performing your own audiobooks? No. This is actually kind of a funny story. I, I didn't want to do the first one because the narrator is a wildly promiscuous murderess. And I just thought, people always think your first book is autobiographical. <laughs> so I didn't want to be any more associated with that book. So when I did decide, you know, I wanted to do the second book, I asked my editor at the time about it. And she was like... Oh, that is so cute. No, no, no one wants that. You will be very bad at it. And I was like, no, 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 I, I'll be good at it. And she was like, well, that's adorable. So they made me audition. <laughs> I auditioned for it. And then they were like, oh, okay, you do know how to do this. And so I've been doing it ever since. And I even read for other authors now. I love it. So speaking of heart palpitations, what was your experience like recording Mother May I? Oh, it was a delight. There's a studio that HarperCollins and um, William Morrow and all of the imprints of HarperCollins use here um, called Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Everybody uses them. They're professional and great. And I have the same sound engineer that I've worked with for like five or six books now. Oh, so cool. it's it's a great pleasure. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're being really safe. Like they run an air filter in the little room and then only you are in that room for the five days. And it's just... You know, and your sound engineer is through the glass anyway. So you're like, hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jocelyn, not to put you on the spot, but we're curious about Mother May I. Can you, do you think you can describe the book in three words? Oh, um, who in three words? Well, can I have four if one's an article? A Mother's Relentless Love. Whoa. Good. Mm, yes. That jives Very with good. my reading. Perfect. I love it. I know all I of our it. listeners are really going to love Mother May I. We definitely did. And we're so, so excited to have well, thank um, you the guys for everything for you do to help my books find their way to readers' ears, I guess, in this case. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us uh, so that we can learn a little bit about what goes on behind the audiobook. Thank you, Jocelyn. That was Jocelyn Jackson, whose new book, Mother May I, goes on sale April 6th. To find out more about Jocelyn's book and how to buy it, head to jocelynjackson.com. And that's J-O-S-H-I-L-Y-N, jackson.com. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating. Another and leave way a to review. help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast is to tell a friend. It really helps others to find us.
Before we go, we'd like to thank Andrew K. Reline, who pulls all the audiobook excerpts for the Book Club Girl podcast. Until next time, and I'm, I'm Tavia. Happy listening. Two. She was not a witch, of course. Just a little old lady in a baggy black dress and cardigan. She lurched past my car, hurrying across the lot with a limping, pained gait. She did have a hat on, a dark knit cap that came to a sort of peak, but it was not tall or excessively pointy. Brie, Marshall said, concerned. I wasn't sure what my face was doing. I pushed past him, running to the windows. He joined me. Are you okay? I'm fine. Author Jocelyn Jackson joins us this week Even to talk audiobooks, specifically about her new novel, Mother May I. This is a special bonus ancient, edition of the Book Club Girl podcast. Download or stream it now. Grocery bag, much like mine, for God's sake. But she did resemble my dream witch, especially her hair, striped gunmetal gray and silver, the thin locks straggling out from under her hat. I wondered if I should call the headmaster or even the police, just to get a report on the record, in case the witch hadn't been a dream, but a thing my subconscious had made out of this actual woman, in case she really had been lurking in my backyard. It seemed ridiculous, though. I knew what they would think of me, a mom with a new baby, over-anxious and sleep-deprived, I could perfectly imagine their amused glances if I called them to report seeing a little old lady, maybe twice. It would be worse if I was truthful and mentioned the dream I'd had earlier. A witch, you say? They would be polite, but only because we lived in Decatur. We had high property taxes and our own police force. Money bought manners, and Trey made a lot of it. Otherwise, I knew how it would go. I knew because when I was growing up, my mother called the police on the regular. She lived convinced that my father might come back, even after he'd gone to prison, even after he was dead. She'd hear him creeping around under the house or on the roof at night, and, yes, she often thought she saw a figure peering in our windows. I knew most of our regular beat cops by name. Officer McKenzie would at least shine his light into the crawl space, but his flat gaze and long, slow exhales made it clear he thought my mom was crazy. Officer Loblis was more blunt about it. There are people in actual trouble, and here I am, with you, again. Officer Dobson was the worst looming over us, anger palpable in the lines of his big body. Once, I heard him mutter, I ought to give you something to be scared about, lady, as he left. He was only a little less frightening than the imagined man she had called about. When I got pregnant with Peyton so soon after Anna Claire, my mom let us buy her a condo near us. I'd long wanted to evacuate her from the leaky two-bedroom ranch where I'd grown up, but she wouldn't move until she believed she was doing it for me. It was wonderful having her close when I had a newborn and a one-year-old, but the best part of the condo was the on-site security. 
All guests had to sign in and out, and only residents had key cards that would activate the elevators. Mom hadn't called the cops once since she moved in. And yet, as I considered calling them myself, the mingled shame and fear from childhood were churning in me. I'd never learned my born, wealthy husband's ease. In his mind, the police worked for him, cruising our neighborhood to keep us safe. Whenever I saw them passing through or parked on our corner, I was swamped with the irrational, anxious feeling that I'd done a crime so secret that even I didn't realize it. Maybe I should tell Marshall. For all his recent coolness, I still trusted him. If he took my witch sighting seriously, it would be permission for me to as well. Did you see that woman? I asked. She was already out of sight. The Mima? Did she look like a... I couldn't bring myself to say the word witch. Marshall didn't have time for this nonsense any more than the actual police would. No, it's stupid, never mind. He was concerned, though, leaning toward me like the old friend that he was. It felt like an opening to fix whatever this breach was, and surely that mattered more than a bad dream. I touched his arm. Do you have to go straight back to work, or can you stay and watch rehearsal with me? He blinked and stepped back. I could almost feel a wall of cool air whoosh back between us. They let you do that? There was a slight emphasis on the you, as if he thought I'd finagled some rare privilege. Any parent with a kid in the show can, I assured him. I wasn't sure if this was technically true, but a lot of moms did it. If we sit up in the balcony, Ms. Taft won't even notice. Marshall's eyebrows came together. There's a balcony? Yes. You haven't gone in to see the performance space? The new pack had been open for only eight weeks. Grease Jr. would be the first middle school show on the big stage. It seats 500. Practically Broadway. That'll be fun for the kids, Marshall said. And I bet Anna Claire will be front and center every show. It sounded like a compliment, but Marshall knew that Trey's family had paid for a good bit of the construction. Trey and his sister were both alumni, and our nieces attended high school here. Was Marshall implying that the Cabots were buying roles for Anna Claire? I felt my cheeks go pink, indignant. Marshall had been at work during auditions, but I'd watched. After Anna Claire sang, there are worse things I could do, I'd heard a mom behind me whisper to her friend, wow, guess we know who'll be Rizzo. I'd agreed. I was biased, sure, but I'd also majored in theater. I'd had lead parts in a ton of shows, starting in middle school myself. I still loved theater, and Trey got the whole family season tickets to the Fox and the Alliance for my birthday every year. I'd taken the girls up to New York for Broadway weekends ever since they were old enough to sit through a show. I'd done and seen enough to know that my talented daughter had beaten out every other kid, including his that day, by a mile. I stopped myself before I said any of this to Marshall, though. Anna Claire had polished her audition for weeks with her vocal coach, Mr. Reggie, who'd been on Broadway himself. He cost 150 bucks an hour. 
Kara was as naturally gifted as my kid, but her talent was raw. Early in college, I'd lost parts to girls who'd grown up with money for drama camp, acting classes, vocal training. I remembered being 18 years old and already feeling so behind. So I only said, well, I'm going to watch, and picked up Robert's carrier seat. He made a p noise. Almost supper time, I promised him. To my surprise, Marshall asked, so where are the stairs? I was still smarting, but I gave him the warmest smile I could. This way. In the balcony, Peyton was already sitting in the back row, reading. I set Robert's carrier down beside her. If he started squalling, I wanted a straight shot out into the stairwell so we wouldn't disturb rehearsal. I'd brought his bottle in a warming sleeve, and as I got it out, Peyton asked, Can I feed Bumper? Robert, sure. I peeled him out of his chair and settled him in her arms. Marshall had made his way to the middle of the balcony's front row. I went down to join him, but I sat on the end, still smarting from his insinuation. The performance was a week away, so they were running full scenes. They were in the park now, and Anna Claire was singing, Look at me, I'm Sandra D." It was cute, though in this junior version, there was no mention of drinking, smoking, or swearing, much less sex. Instead, Rizzo mocked Sandy for her good grades and being a square. As Anna Claire vamped across the stage, I realized the bit about not coming across had survived the edits. I don't think Ms. Taft, who was in her 20s, knew it was sexual, and neither did our new young headmaster, apparently, because he had approved the script. St. Albans was Episcopalian, quite liberal for a church-run school, but not that liberal. I shot an amused smile at Marshall, but he was watching Kara dance with the other pink ladies. Peyton came up and joined me. I glanced back at Robert's carrier seat, still by the back row. Asleep? I asked quietly. Dead to the world. Did he burp? Twice, Mom. Peyton gave me her mild version of her elder sister's eye roll. I know how to do bumper. Robert. She really is talented, Marshall said in a gruff whisper. He was looking at Anna Claire now, his face impassive. If this was an apology, I'd take it. Kara is too. Her big number is in the sleepover scene. She kills it. The director called the kids in for a huddle. I glanced back over my shoulder. The car seat sat sideways to me, so all I saw was Robert's feet in their puppy socks, but this was his biggest nap of the day. I could probably click the carrier into the car and drive home before he woke up. I told Marshall, I'm going to clean up the green room. I knew from experience the kids would have stuffed fruit snack wrappers all down in the couch cushions. He was already rising. I got it. You did the setup, I reminded him. Stay, that table's heavy. He turned toward the other aisle so he wouldn't have to climb over my knees. Want to help, I asked Peyton. No response until I put my hand in between her face and the page. Hey, you coming down? I'm going to read here until it's really time to go. AC takes forever to peel herself off Greer. Anna Claire, I corrected. Honestly, AC was as bad as Bumper.
Your sister is not a cooling system. She kinda is, Peyton shrugged, jealousy and admiration at war in her expression. Greer says Anna Claire makes any room she's in feel cool. Now everyone calls her that. I glanced after Marshall, already disappearing into the stairwell on the other side. If I didn't hurry, he'd clean up alone, more proof that I was a spoiled second wifey. Still, my middle child needed a moment. I think you're cool, I told her. She snorted. You're my mom. The fact that you think I'm cool means I'm for sure a dork. Well, cool is overrated. And sometimes it's code for a little bit mean. But you? You're smart. A good student. Super cute. Best of all, you have a kind heart. She shrugged it off, disappearing into her book again. But I could see her fighting a smile. Good talk, I said to no one. But it had been. Peyton went back to reading. Ten seconds later, I could have set a bomb off beside her and she wouldn't have heard it. I used to read like that when I was young, before I was a mother. Now nothing took me that far from reality. Except maybe watching my children perform. Miss Taft had decided to run the Sandra D song one more time. It was time to clean up, but Marshall had told me I could stay. Anna Claire came center and began, and the whole world fell away again. It was the same when I was at a robotics match and Peyton was at the controls. At ten weeks, all Robert had to do was show his brand new toothless smile to put me into a trance. When she finished, I stood and gave her huge silent thumbs up, then patted Peyton's oblivious knee. When I turned to go, I didn't see Robert's car seat. But that wasn't possible. It had been right there. I hurried up the aisle, caught in a chilly disbelief. Maybe the seat was behind the chairs, but who had moved it? No one else had been up here. I tried to remember the last time I'd looked back to check on him. Not long, I didn't think, but I'd been talking to Peyton, and then Anna Claire had started singing... This was scary, but at the same time, part of me was sure there was an explanation. Maybe Greer had taken him back down to the green room. She was baby crazy. I was at the row now, and he was gone. Just gone. So was his diaper bag. His empty bottle lay abandoned on the floor. Beside it was a single sheet of white paper folded in half. I picked it up my hands visibly trembling. I opened it. A note, handwritten in large block print. If you ever want to see your baby again, go home. The black ink went blurry. The paper rattled in my hands. I couldn't read. I couldn't see or breathe. My spine was glass and all my blood was water. I found myself sitting on the floor beside his empty bottle, my dazed mind noted there was a little milk in it, maybe half an ounce. I blinked hard, trying to clear my vision, but I didn't need to read more of the note to know what had happened. I had not dreamed a witch. I'd seen a real person, made of flesh and bone and a secret dark agenda, peering in my window. 
I'd seen her again, hurrying through the parking lot toward the fire door that the kids kept propping open. She'd been stalking me. No, she'd been stalking Robert. And now she had him. Three. As Marshall put the leftover snacks in the green room refrigerator, he caught himself hoping Bree would walk in and see him handling this small task for her. It was like a dead mouse he could drop on her doorstep. It made him tired of himself. She was happily married with three kids. Not to mention her husband was both a nice guy and one of his damn bosses. He was digging a surprising number of fruit snack wrappers out of the sofa cushions when Kara found him. Need some help? She asked him, smiling. Every other middle school human must have vacated the building. He was getting eye contact and everything. He smiled back. Thanks, he said, and then couldn't resist adding, Sugar peep. Just to see her eyes dart around, making sure no lingering teen or tween had heard the silly nickname. God, he wouldn't be 13 again for $100,000, not even for a day. He stopped teasing her and added, serious. I watched rehearsal from the balcony. You are great. I can't wait to see the whole show. She looked down, tried to wave it away. I don't do much in that scene. Are you kidding me? You were all I could look at. And to think he'd been so worried. At Kara's old school, drama club had been tiny and underfunded but it was huge at St. Albans. Less than a quarter of the kids who tried out made the casts. Carrot worked so hard, practicing every afternoon in front of the hall mirror, her heart so clearly set. He'd been praying she'd make the ensemble. Instead, she'd landed Marty, a pink lady, with a solo and a custom-made satin jacket that she got to keep. I'm so proud of you. You have a presence that lights up the whole stage, like your mom. That made her smile, though it was not exactly true. Kara was better. On stage, charismatic Betsy had always turned stiff and awkward, things she almost never was in life. Bree had been the actor who could make the real world disappear. He had gone to see Sense and Sensibility his sophomore year of high school, because his English teacher offered extra credit, He'd been in school with Bree since sixth grade. But in the play, she'd truly turned into another person, one who was magic and beautiful and twice as alive as any girl he'd ever seen. He'd barely noticed Betsy as the mother. Later, at the standing weekend keg party by the tracks, he'd caught sight of Bree and another girl near the fire pit, both holding red solo cups of tepid beer he drifted over, trying to be cool, desperate to know her better. It was as if she had a dimmer switch in her, and she'd turned it all the way down the second she stepped off the stage. The other girl was Betsy. She'd been around since sixth grade, too, but she'd grown up over the summer. He literally hadn't recognized her. In real life, Bree became background next to Bet's. Even Bree seemed to assume that he'd come over for her friend, and within five minutes, she was right. Betts was flirty, fun as hell, with a whip-smart sense of humor that never quite got mean. 
Kara had her mother's sharp fox's face and dark brown eyes, but inside she was more like him, thoughtful and cautious. She did have Betsy's light, but like Breeze, it kindled brightest when she was performing. He meant it when he told her, you killed up there today. You have to say that. You're my dad, she said, but she bumped his shoulder with hers, smiling. I have my bag. Can you drop me at Yvonne's? Her mom says we'll stop for dinner on the drive. She was going with a school friend to her family's lake house all weekend. He'd planned to take her out for burgers, just the two of them first. Still, he said, sure. It was hard to find time with Kara these days, but he didn't want to mess up this nice moment. She was pulling away, growing up, keeping small secrets. In another five years, she'd be off to college. Maybe by then his ancient suits and his southern accent wouldn't embarrass her, though compared to the way he'd talked when he was her age, he practically sounded like a TV news anchor. Most of the other parents here had no accent, though, or they had that faint vowel-rounding burr that said old Atlanta money. She helped him turn the table onto its side and flip the legs down, and for a moment he considered inviting Bree to eat with him instead. Trey was working out of town. She might want grown-up company. It would be perfectly innocent with all three of her kids there. He shook his head. Since Kara changed schools, they were thrown together all the time. Before, she'd always belonged to Betsy, which had made her sexless somehow. How had she gotten so damn beautiful? Kara was humming Freddie, my love, her curls bouncing as they carried the table back into the storage room. He needed some serious distance from Bree, but his daughter was thriving at St. Albans. He couldn't stop being involved in her activities or, worse, pull her from the school over a few stray pink hard-eyed feelings. It was probably residue of his love for Betsy. She and Bree had been so close. He'd keep avoiding Bree until he stopped crushing like he was Kara's age. Maybe he should get back on match. He'd tried it a couple of years ago. Nightmare. He hadn't been ready. Maybe this crush was proof that he was now. Hey, have you seen my mom? Anna Claire leaned in the doorway looking like the underage Russian supermodel version of her mother. Peyton slouched behind her, her face buried in a book. Kara's hum abruptly cut out, and she straightened, her cheeks staining. She picked at her plaid skirt. Bree had dropped off a whole bag of the school's pricey uniforms after Kara got the scholarship, saying they were hand-me-downs from Anna Claire. Bree was such a good actor that only the one price tag she'd missed had kept him from believing her. The firm paid him well. He could have afforded the uniforms, if not the tuition. Still, he'd let Bree get away with it, because she loved his kid, Betsy's kid. She'd been after him to let her take care of her private voice lessons, too. Maybe he should but it would mean seeing Bree more, last thing he needed. Check the parking lot, he said. The car is gone, Peyton said, not looking up. That was strange, but before he could react, his phone buzzed. 
Bree. His stupid heartbeat quickened when he saw her name on the screen. He smiled at the girls. This is her, probably looking for you. Anna Claire's eyebrows came together and she checked her own phone. Why didn't she just text me? He pushed the button. Hey, where'd you get to? Can you take the girls? It had to be Bree. Caller ID said so, but he didn't recognize the voice. It was raspy sounding, guttural. Bree. I need you to take the girls. It was her, but sick and strained. Is it mom? Peyton asked. Do what now? He was careful to keep his voice calm and his face pleasant. Tell her I have a Skype study with Anderson at six. I need to get home, Anna Claire said, grumpy. Where's the car? Peyton asked. At the same time, words were tumbling out of Bree. They were nonsense. The baby is, the baby is, I'm sick. I'm so sick. Please take the girls to your house. He blinked. Marshall lived a good half hour outside the city, way past Bree's own house. He heard her take a long, shuddering inhale. No, I mean, take them to my mom's place.